Are you ready, kids? I am very ready. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Split Take Podcast. This time, Chandler and I are accompanied by some beers. Back to our one beer. semi-normal record. Well, I have no alcohol. I, I have more than one beer in front of me. Well, there you go. He's got enough beer for both of us. The required alcohol percentage. Here's some alcohol. This podcast. Through, the, through the interwebs, I'll send you some. It's an 805, too. What have we been watching? <laughs> well, I had a streak. A famous streak. My typical viewing schedule, I try to hit at least three movies a week. You know, sometimes I'm busy or sometimes I feel I'd rather play video games and watch a movie. So for someone with things to do with their life and an active uh, social schedule, or should I say uh, people to hang out with Mm -hmm. three movies a week is is a reasonable pace. It is. I I mean, that's the minimum. I oftentimes get in around the four or five. But up until a few days ago, election night, I had hit one movie a day for 17 days straight. Not 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 all of them new. Some of them watches for this sure. podcast or rewatches, but that's a pretty respectable record for me. It is. I you know, for all of my record keeping, I don't actually know what's the longest streak I've ever had, and I think it'd be shorter than you might expect it to be. I would imagine at least a month. Like a month I don't think straight. I've ever gotten a month of of I, I every day, have, but yeah. Yeah, usually like there's almost every month I have one day that I skip. Mm. If I had time to watch a movie every day, I would. For the record, it's certainly not easy to do. You have to make time and go out of your way to do it and ignore other responsibilities or at least other things you can do. Mm-hmm. So I'll just go ahead and go through the 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 highlights. Yeah, stop to right here. I think. No, we didn't talk about It Follows last time, right? We did not, no. No, okay. So we, so we are catching up on the end of October yeah. at the moment. So right in the end, I got a lot of horror watches in. Started with Bone Tomahawk, which is great. It is. It, it has the same like factory assembled feel of like a John Ford Western, but it's very, very dark and spooky, especially towards the end. Very brutal. I've seen some clips from it. It, it looks brutal. What? It is very brutal. Uh, it it follows. Finally watched it. Uh, pretty good. Not as good as Under the Silver Lake. Eraserhead. That is my. I, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 you're you're skipping too fast. Uh, it follows. What? Why were you comparing it to Under the Silver Lake? Because the Just same curious. director. Yes. They're not alike but, in any other way. No, they're not really. I don't know if I'm gonna. I don't think. I, I don't think this will come as a shock to you, but I think I prefer It Follows. I figured you would. I won't say it's better. I don't know what is is actually better um although i think think most people say it follows is better it's more streamlined but yeah i think there's probably more going on with the under the silver lake more to kind of chew into on repeat viewings Uh, i say as chandler gives me wide eyes and nods yeah (laughs) enthusiastically not saying that this is shallow by any means the the one thing about it it follows that keeps following me around that i that i like that i keep remembering is the score the score is great the same guy did on under the silver lake yeah uh, disaster piece. Disaster piece. This, it's, what it's what I like haunting most, and kind of cool. Yeah, what I like most about that movie is its very very vague time period, mm-hmm. where a lot of it it feels like the seventies and modern day at the same time. And speaking of of interesting anachronisms in that film, they watch a <laughs> B movie 
what is it called? Killers from Space. Killers from Space, that's it, with the little googly-eyed aliens. And Ooh, not little googly eyes, they're fucking massive. All right, massive. They're obnoxiously eyes. large. Which Chandler and I have uh, we've seen. Yep. Uh, it's one of the few B movies we've before seen. Before the end times, we used to have uh, bad movie nights, and that was one of the first ones yeah. we did. And this was before I had seen It Follows. So we were on the uh, Killers from Space train before it was cool. I, well, that's the thing is it was it was a it was a fun little um, feeling that I had where immediately I'm like, oh my god, it's Killers from Space. Immediately followed by, well, I hate that I know that. <laughs> <laughs> and see, I love that I know that. I don't want to tell people that my yearly October tradition is uh, rewatching Eraserhead. It's not a horror movie, but it's horrifying. Yeah, um, it fits aesthetically with the season. Yeah, it does. It maybe does. not maybe not fully with the, the, the genres normally associated with the, uh, the month. It is still, I think, my favorite David Lynch movie. If Twin Peaks doesn't count as a movie, it doesn't. If we're being all honest with ourselves, Same. but I'll, I'll agree. I think we both. We both agree that it's a movie and we agree that it's not a movie yeah. in our in the deep parts of our hearts. I own Eraserhead and I have not watched it since I got it. I need to Have you only seen I it need once? To rewatch it. Only seen it once. Yeah. It's good. I just keep putting it off. No, I know it's good. I, I like it. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I just I just haven't been in the mood to uh give it a second. second if for watch. nothing else, just pop in the criterion for the insane special features. Where one of them is called Eraserhead Stories, where it's literally just a 90-minute movie of David Lynch sitting in a room with a microphone and telling random Eraserhead stories. Like one of them where he met his sound engineer on a plane and told him that he look, he appears to be, he felt spiritually as if he might have been an airline pilot from another world in a past life. <laughs> oh, Lynch. Oh, I love how all, Lynch is like so uptight about talking about his movies and like the meaning behind his films. Yeah. He gives off the vibe. If you'd never bought any of his movies, any of the criterions, he gives off the vibe that you would just like get a disc with the movie and that's it. And yet pretty close to that. Some, all of his movies have like packed special features. They do on the criterions, no commentaries. No. I I think that's, that's on brand. And uh, my favorite thing is that there are no chapter marks? Nope. So you can't skip ahead in the in the movie. Very. I mean, annoying. you can. You can just fast forward. But uh, I think if David Lynch had the option to like, you know how it's like some movies they don't let you press the main menu button mm-hmm. when you're when you're watching some of the uh, credits or titles. Yeah, I think if David Lynch had the option to uh, make the the fast forward button illegal <laughs> or unpressable, he would. He'd also somehow manage to hook your Blu-ray up to the uh, electrical circuit and turn off every light in your house as soon as this movie starts. Uh, my my one takeaway from Eraserhead, I mean, I have a lot, um, but my, my one big thing is that my hot take about this movie is I think the Eraserhead baby's cute. And I always feel bad at the I, end of it. I don't it find dies. it particularly terrifying. It's, it's I mean, it's definitely unsettling, but I don't find it... Uh, in, the, in the end, it gets really, you know, when there's the giant one. But you know what I think would have been more terrifying? Hmm. I don't know if this is sacrilege to say something more terrifying than a Lynch idea would be like a deformed baby. Yeah. Cause babies already kind of ride the line between cute and ugly. And some people find them ugly. Some people kind of find them cute. Mm-hmm. So I feel like just like a little tweak to send a, an actual baby into the, uncanny like uh, in the return, that guy in the jail cell, the thing on his face, 
Mm. He's he's kind of there and he's on the brink. After that, I watched uh, Night of the Living Dead. I've never seen this before. Mm. It has a very neat criterion that I want to pick up. I was considering uh, picking it up at the flash sale. Yeah, didn't. It is it is a movie that I put off for a long time because I kind of hate zombie movies. Hmm. Um, not because they're bad, just because there's a period from the late 2000s, early 2010s where it was just ridiculously oversaturated. Zombies were infecting every corner of popular culture, and I was just sick of them. Sure. And I still am just scarred. From what about that. Uh, Train to Busan? I've never seen it. No, oh. no, because right around the time that I figured I like learned about it, I was like, ah, I'm done with zombies. I'm done. But but now, you know, you like Korean thrillers. I do. I would give Train to Busan a, a try. But Night of the Living Dead, I'm like, OK, I need to sit down and watch this in the context that if I were watch this movie was made at a time where the the modern notion of a zombie was essentially non-existent. So I put myself in the mindset of somebody who would be watching this in 1968. And I thought it was really great. There's still a lot of the, the, um, a lot of the like staples of the, the zombie narrative are still there where you have person that is beloved in the first act is a zombie in the third act. Uh, father has to kill zombie daughter, stuff like that. But then again, I'm I, I, when I th- see these things on uh, in the movie, I'm like, uh, this again. But then I think, oh, this is not this again. This is this for the first time. This and is I, this. This is this. And if I was in 1968, I'd be very, well, uh, you know, compelled. I don't think it was for the very first time. I'm sure there was. No, no. The, I looked it up. It. Um, the the zombie like resurrected dead is something that has been had multiple different forms and interpretations over it's the years, evolved over the years yeah yeah this this was the zombie, start of our modern conception of yeah zombies yeah this zombie comes from um the i think it was the haitian yeah variation you know i know it's not completely original but the twisting it for a modern context as far as i know not as effective until this movie so through that lens this is a really solid movie and also, something I always find hilarious is that the main character, whose name is Dwayne Jones, who is an African-American man, cast in the lead role of your movie in 1968. You know, big revolutionary thing. But uh, George Romero just has gone on record saying, yeah, he was the best actor that read, so that's why we chose him. Didn't think about the 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 context or the... Cons- not, I don't want to say consequences, the... The effects that that might have, I just find it funny that he like stumbled backwards into revolutionary filmmaking. Mm. Good. Uh, Carnival of Souls, perfectly okay. Have you seen this? I saw some people on the uh, Criterion uh, Reddit recommending that. It is pretty good. Mm. It is. It's very similar to a Lynch movie, actually, but <sighs> it's fine. I I have never heard. I've heard of it, but I don't know. I literally know nothing about it. Carnival of Souls is interesting because it's sort of like Night of the Hunter where you have um, the guy who made it. This is like the only movie he ever made. Revolutionary movie did it once. Nothing ever again. It's good. I recommend it. It's short. It's only 78 minutes. Oh, that is short. Um, But it's a lot of like girl sees things that other people don't see. She thinks she's crazy. I don't find those narratives compelling. Uh, rewatched The Thing on Halloween. I love The Thing. The Thing's my favorite horror movie. The Thing's great. 
not much to say on the thing that hasn't been said. I also watched Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time. Pretty good. I thought it was going to be a lot dumber. It's actually really crazy some of the things that they do in this movie. Some real creative filmmaking. And Johnny Depp's in it. And then I watched The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Oh, now this is a this is a criterion I blind bought some time ago because it it looks good. And I'm assuming you went down the same path. I did. Well, the thing is, I have an affinity for um, gangster movies about old gangsters. And it and it's from six late 60s, I want to say. Yep. Early 70s. And are you aware of the director? Robert Yates or Peter Yates. Peter Yates. And do you know what he's done? Yes. At one point I have, but I could not tell you offhand, well, so what? we have seen two Peter Yates movies, because he did this, The Friends of Eddie Coyle in 1973, and almost a decade later, a, a decade later, he follows it up with... Crawl. Crawl. Oh. <laughs> Another bad movie we've seen. We're, we're pulling out all the memories. Crawl, which is huh. just awful. <laughs> Fun. Oh. But off. Yeah, I, I fondly remember it. I'd watch it again. It's not the worst thing that we've seen, but yeah. I, I would say it's not a good movie, but it is a entertaining movie. It is. It is. I really, really, really liked The Friends of Eddie Coyle, though. I thought it was amazing. It's great. It is a great movie about gangsters thinking that they're friends with other gangsters and then those other gangsters plot to kill said gangster. It, it's got wonderful cold atmosphere it takes place in boston yeah, which is weird a boston crime movie yeah it's it's pretty unique in that respect i think too but the best part of this movie is uh is robert mitchum oh of course who plays the uh eddie coyle titular eddie the coyle. titular eddie coyle it's you know it's, it's a very low-key movie it's not there are some amazing heist scenes in this movie sorry i just need to comment that one of my favorite uh words is titular and i <laughs> love using it whenever i can <laughs> it is Continue. good uh yeah it's got some amazing heist scenes in this movie very simple filmmaking remind me a lot of uh Sidney Lumet it's good I really really liked it I give it the five star I was just uh you know I was kind of feeling that's my gut feeling about it I definitely want to watch it again definitely recommend it for people who like gangster movies or Robert Mitchum uh then I watched the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Ooh. so and you haven't read the book I've not read the which book is but one, I want it's to one of my book favorite now. books it's Douglas Adams is a hilarious writer and a lot of the fun quirky parts of the film are literally just lifted verbatim out of the out of the book yeah and then there's other things that are changed mm -hmm. so significantly but in a subtle way that I kind of get them the book and the movie sometimes mixed up yeah it, it's it's strange but the book is most certainly uh better Although I think the the film adaptation is is it's a guilty pleasure of mine. I really like it. It is. It's not a bad movie because there's a lot of like creativity into the actual filmmaking. But the whole time I'm watching, I'm just like this. This book seems good. Because it's I, I feel like the book is kind of long and they're trying to put as much of the book as they can into the movie. And the tone of the book comes out pretty well in the, yes. the movie. The movie but, does get the tone correct. But yeah. as far as the plot goes, it's just a mess. <laughs> it never stops. It never breathes. The romance is so painfully contrived that I cringed anytime Martin Freeman and Zoe Deschanel were on the screen together. See, it's it's so cringy. It it loops around itself to be like I don't know. It's partially because I watched this when I was really young. So I kind of I fell in love with it first. 
And then now it's cringy, but in a kind of nostalgic way. It's not a bad movie. For me. It, it is an entertaining movie. It is a messy movie that it, the best thing this movie did was convince me to read the book. Oh, good. Which I will. That's that's pretty good. That's a victory if the if the film yeah. manages to do that. And then I watched uh, Life is Sweet, which is a Mike Lee movie. I've already seen it earlier this year, but about the Criterion, so I watched it again. Then I watched it a third time three days later, just the director commentary. Mike Lee's really funny. His commentary is just some of my favorite. Uh, the best thing that he said in this movie is at the beginning of the movie, he does the commentary where he says me and a friend of mine um, started. This is the first movie we did with the production company. We started called the thin man. We of course named this company, the thin man, because we are both rather corpulent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's a funny man. And then of course I ended it with uh, come and see. Mm. Hey, Still great, still horrible to watch. I rewatched Come we'll, and See. We'll, we'll get to that. Eventually. We will eventually. I rewatched Come and See, and for like the first hour, I was like, "Is this really as bad as I thought it was?" And then he gets to the barn, and then it's just forty minutes of just nightmare filmmaking. It's a masterpiece. I don't know how much more you have, but I, I watched. That's uh, it. That's all I have. A, okay, a slight side tangent. I watched uh, A Face in the Crowd, Elia Kazan. Uh, last night and my mom was very emotional at the end of that film it was uh she doesn't like a lot of Sadness. violence or at least the the implied okay then if violence or uh death is is remotely implied she's she's kind of turn turns away from the screen yeah i'm trying to think of we watched one movie where someone gets hanged and she couldn't stand just watching someone get hanged and it cuts away immediately. But she's interesting. Right away. Anyway, so show her uh, irreversible. She the, the thing is, is that she really likes Russian movies and wants me to, to show her any Russian movies I like. Really? Yeah, hmm, that's interesting. But so every once in a while, I'm like, come and see. I should show her that. No. <laughs> and then, you know, a, a face no. in the crowd proves to me that if if no one actually dies or there's not even any violence in that film, really? Yeah. You know, if she can't handle that, if she doesn't like that, then uh, I'm not sure we'd get through five minutes of come and see. No, no. I mean, I can show her. Is Andre Rublev bad in that regard? No. You can show her. I feel like you'd be able to show her most of Tarkovsky. I have. Although that is a slower burn. She has seen more Tarkovsky than you have. I, I've seen one. She loves Tarkovsky. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I, she hasn't disliked one yet. What, what, what's the one about the cranes? The cranes are flying. Yes. Yeah, she. I, I've shown her that. Okay. I literally, there's, there may be like, fifteen percent of my criterions I can show her, and I've already shown them all. Oh damn! Has she seen the death of Stalin? No, it's, it's, it's come up in a few conversations. The worst that happens in that movie is he gets his brain revealed. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> could skip that scene, I guess. No, the end. The end, actually. No, the end with um. The other corporate. I think that'd man. be fine. But then again, I thought a face in the crowd would have been fine. Mm. Yeah. So October was South Korean binge month because the Criterion Channel had and still does a new new South Korean cinema mm -hmm. uh, playlist on their on the streaming. And so I, I watched a bunch of that. Good stuff. <laughs> Where to begin? 
I'm just going to quickly run through this. Uh, there's a film called Save the Green Green Planet from 2003. What a strange science fiction film. It's like a a weird it's like somewhere in between like Bakurao and Parasite. It's strange. <laughs> so does, are you saying that it has a distinct first and second half? No, but uh, it's it's kind of campy and it has all the the North I was about to say North Korean. Uh, no, the South Korean uh, hallmarks of, of the thrillers there. Uh, interesting, really interesting movie. Uh, if you like science fiction, it's, it's worth a watch. It's pretty unique in that regard. I watched quite a few uh, Park Chan-wook movies. In fact, I tripled my my exposure to Park Chan-wook mm. in October. I watched the Vengeance trilogy and, and all that. Tell me about the vampire and one. And uh, Thirst. Park Chan-wook has a pacing issue. Oh. I know I love It's my favorite <laughs> criticism to have, but uh, I, I mean it. it. It's fairly consistent across his films that they don't really move with any consistent meaningful pace. towards any meaningful conclusion they do move to a conclusion it's just yeah. kind of we're oddly paced and it, you're never quite sure where you are going until you get there i think that's with most south korean movies though mm, well they just don't are, know are what's going to happen i mean yeah i i mean like in, in a in a narrative sense you don't know where you are in the script like i feel you can get a pretty good idea of like oh i'm in the middle of the second act okay yeah yeah Whereas in a Park Chan Wook film, I was like, I, I don't know where I'm at. I'm somewhere. How much longer is in this movie? And <laughs> hmm. like, once I get over that, they're they're pretty great. Some of them are really weird. A lot South Korean cinema, weird, uh, in a good way. But my favorite of his so far, beyond Old Boy, which I've seen uh, a while ago. But my favorite that I watched last month was uh, Joint Security Area, which he did back in like 2000, and it's about the border between North Korea and South Korea. It's kind of a bad title. <laughs> no, it's Doesn't, a terrible it's not, title. Not thrilling, but it's it's like a, it's a mystery thriller about a crime that takes place at the at the DMZ, and it's uh, it's pretty good. Hmm. I liked it. Uh, Quentin Tarantino also really likes it. He he included it in his list of movies that he really likes. Yeah. Um. As far as Park Chan Wook goes, I've only seen Old Boy and the Handmaiden. I really like both those movies. I like Handmaiden, but Handmaiden is is a good example of his pacing weird wonky pacing i think at least i remember it, the movie feeling long so maybe that's why all, all i remember from that movie is the ridiculously over the top but still tasteful uh sex scenes <laughs> they were insane in that movie <laughs> old boy is one that i've been meaning to rewatch. arrow's coming out with a really nice release for region b i need to rewatch old boy you have a region free, don't you? Region free Blu-ray player on my computer. A USB. Yeah, that's right. Is uh, region free. I watched. Whatever region is England, that's the one that Old Boy's coming out on. I don't know. I don't know enough about regions. Uh, I mean, I've only ever needed the one region A. Fair. So why learn about the others? Anyway, I watched uh, Albert Brooks Lost in America, which the the Criterion and the poster looks great. It's two people. Uh, a man and a woman with their heads buried in the sand with uh, Monument yeah, Valley in the background. Yeah, uh, Barnes and Noble the other day. Yeah, it's really great. A little, little bit of a letdown after that poster, actually. Very, very eighties, kind of lambasting eighties cor- corporate culture. It is a road trip movie, and in that sense, it's one of the more unique road trip movies I think from that era. 
and it gets a it gets four stars in my book just because it filmed on location in I, I want to say Safford, Arizona. Another uh, Arizona which is east movie. East of Tucson. Interesting. I, I love it when uh, movies are filmed in my home state. I almost feel like Albert Brooks has a sense of humor that I almost feel like is too dry for most people. He's a very odd man. Yeah, it's not it, like there's comedy in the movie. And then there's moments where you you know he is doing something comedic, but it's not exactly landing in any sort of mm. way that you relate to on a on a comedic level. You don't not necessarily laughing. Like I don't need to laugh at something in order for it to be funny. Yeah. But it it didn't always land even in that regard. I might just get it anyways. Because the Barnes and Noble but no, it is good. does not have a lot of good stuff. Oh, I did get um I didn't show you, but it's oh, downstairs. Oh, the Barnes & Noble. It's November, so the Barnes & Noble Criterion sale is going on, so we'll, we'll be checking in, in about that. What'd you get? Well, two, I got two so far. I got Come and See, which, you know, that's why you saw it. Uh, and I also got uh, The Piano Teacher. Ah, you got that. I did. Are you going to watch it this, uh, this month? Because I thought, you know what? I love, I love this feeling of uh, feeling hopeless and sad. Well, I'm going to continue this after Come and See. Let's ride this feeling to the grave. <laughs> Not, nothing picks me up like a nice Hanukkah movie. Nothing. It's a good pick. <laughs> I don't even want to go there. <laughs> Speaking of the, the Barnes Noble sale, I picked up the Before Trilogy, Richard Linklater. I have seen the, the first two films in that, in that trilogy before. I had not seen Before Midnight. And the, the first order of business was, of course, to watch Before Midnight and to, to complete that. It was great. Before Midnight gets a lot of people say it's the worst one. Even though I I rated it less than the other two, I wouldn't say it's the worst one. No, you didn't. I, I feel like they're all pretty equal in their quality. What? You didn't rate it the worst one. You gave Before Sunrise sec- and Midnight four and a half stars and Before Sunset four stars, which is the real crime. Why do... Why, wait, 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 wait. This is true. That, that is a crime. I'm, I'm sorry. That My error. Clerical, uh, clerical error. We'll fix this. Anyway... I my only real issue with Before Midnight, which I thought the the kind of marital, the kind of midlife uh, bickering between them was very realistic from my own experience. <laughs> not myself. I am not, uh, you know, parents. Anyway, I thought the ending was a, a little too easy a way out. Like they they seem to have reconciled a bit too quickly after I. Mm. A very a very heated argument and from my experience that is it's it's never it's never wrapped up that neatly but it, it's nice i it just didn't for me uh, and me personally now didn't didn't ring true it has been a while since i've seen it about a year uh i do remember feeling like the end was not necessarily a resolution i didn't feel like anything got resolved I felt like they just no sort nothing of, got resolved, but yeah. they they did seem a bit reconciled after the argument they they had. She does warm up to him, yeah. Maybe not completely, but a bit. Uh, where where the film gives you it ends hopefully, mm-hmm. but maybe maybe a bit too much hope. Crush me, crush my feelings. What is the what is your favorite of the three? Oh, probably before sunrise. Really? I always feel like it's either that or sunset. I'm a sunset person. That one's my favorite because. You know, just in terms of endings, Before Sunset has the best ending, mm. I think. Yes, yes. It's the most memorable ending at the very least. Oh, yeah. 
since I have the trilogy now, I'll probably be rewatching the other two at some point soon. So I will make that. I'm reminding you one thing you need to keep uh, to budget for this month is Ghost Dog, because as soon as that comes out, that's on the docket. Yeah, I know. I don't be I don't like being pinned at any. Corners. I would like to remind you that I am watching the entirety of Full Metal Alchemist. The least you can watch is Ghost Dog. Yeah, but I have to buy it. That's the thing. <laughs> That's true. Uh, all right. Well, well, we'll get to that. It's later in the month. I'm just going to quickly go through this. I watched Borat, subsequent movie film. Have you seen the first one? I have. Yes. It was pre-teen Jacob's uh, favorite comedy. <laughs> and then afterwards, it's it's kind of lost it. some of its, uh, its uh, irreverent charm. It's, it's still good. Borat, subsequent movie film, though, is a bit a bit cringier and doesn't doesn't work for me <laughs> funny it was good to see the character again yeah uh, and, and there's some good stuff in there but it, it overall it kind of boring i haven't seen either so I don't uh, know. speaking of uh yeah well interesting because you you you've done the comedy documentary docu comedy drama you've you've made a short film and i would have thought borat would have been a interesting research film nope i also watched uh, another 2020 movie enola holmes which is on netflix this was really uh i it's not a good movie but it was really (laughs) refreshing to watch because it reminded me of going to the movie theater because this is the kind of movie that i expect to be in a movie theater it had all the kind of modern tropes of 21st century big budget uh, crowd-pleasing cinema it was contrived in the worst way it was uh, it's like a preteen romance in some respects, but it was fun. It was charming. It had enough uh, of its own personality as a film to be at the very least worth my time. And it it was fun to watch something that was a bit more kind of mainstream because I haven't really been watching anything mainstream. I got to think of the last thing I watched that was even you could construe as mainstream. Oh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Never mind. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Not if you go off of box office returns. I'm currently making my way through the Bruce Lee box set, and I'll probably have more comments on that when I finish it. Oh, are you aware of the final film in that box set? Uh, No. Well, there is... I don't know all that much about Bruce Lee. This is my my foray into his filmography. I almost feel like I shouldn't spoil it for you then. Okay, well then don't. Okay, all right. Because I'm pretty sure when you see bruce lee's final performance you will be compelled to let us know your reaction via snapchat so i'm just i'm just saying that oh oh well i do know that he he died and they released it posthumously and they had to use body doubles to complete some of the shots okay well apparently i don't know what you're thinking of which is good just yeah just wait (laughs) (laughs) it's bafflingly bad filmmaking i'll just put it at that (laughs) So when you feel baffled, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) Will do. Uh, What I watched last night was A Face in the Crowd. I watched it because I bought the Criterion during the Barnes & Noble sale in the summer. Never got around to watching it till now. Uh, Felt like the right time after the election, as it is a a movie about politics and media and the mixture of the both, two of them, and the rise of a demagogue. Uh, Sound familiar? And... It is, as I suspected, so I watched this back in freshman year of college. It was actually a film in my film history class. Mm. Uh, I I am questioning why it was shown over many other movies, but I'm glad it was. 
It's a good movie. It is it is one of the most strangely paced movies in the in the middle because it's like there there's montages somewhere in between like a montage and a scene and it just like goes on and like it's jumping and it's it, it goes too fast and then too slow and it it's all over the place but it, it's still pretty good and i have to give it four and a half stars just for the fact that it is so for being a movie made in 1957 it is it feels incredibly modern and relevant today uh, as ever so it, it's worth a watch for that are you familiar with elliot kazan's history his history not really a bit of his filmography Elliot Kazan, if I remember correctly, was a huge whistleblower who ousted a lot of his uh, fellow Hollywood elites as communists during the McCarthyism era. I was just curious to see if any of those guilts were in a face in the crowd because they're very prevalent in uh, on the waterfront. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I almost want to say the climax of the film hinges on the guilt uh, of one person. So that... (laughs) Yeah, it makes sense if you're looking at it from that point of view. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, once you learn it about him, you look for it in all of his movies. Well, it's funny because I learned about it at one point, but forgot, subsequently forgot and then didn't look for it in any films. <laughs> I still only seen it. Once. Although I love him as a, as a director, I uh, can't stand by denouncing uh, people as communists in the uh, in the 60s. <laughs> That's uh, not cool, as they say. <laughs> You know who else did that was um oh who's the actor that was in The Killing and Doctor Strange Love? You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah. George C. Scott? No, no, no. He's the guy who Sterling Hayden? Yeah, Sterling Hayden. Sterling Hayden is another person who ousted a lot of people as, General as Jack, communists. Jack Ripper. <laughs> during the McCarthy era, and there is a great supplement on the killing criterion where it's just Sterling Hayden long retired as an actor he has this big like pirate beard and he's just like going off on justifying him ratting out people that he now realizes weren't communists it's great it's worth purchasing the killing for that and because it's the best kubrick movie says the man who hasn't seen 2001 space Odyssey. that's true that's true i yeah oh yep yep hey you're not wrong <sighs> so our bfi movie of the week is another another french film mandatory frenchness as we've put it the film is that's not it the film is les enfants du paradis made sure to look up the french pronunciation to get it right this time around and i am probably gonna get exactly no comments about how i fucked it up it's not good to me Children My of Paradise. Not exactly high. It is a it's a nineteen forty five French film directed by Marcel Carnet, and it there there is a lot of of history to say, though I I kind of want to get into what we think it. about the film, <laughs> and we'll we'll talk maybe a bit about the the context of the movie. Uh, needless to say, though, maybe not needless to say, it is a one of perhaps the most popular classic French films in France itself. When it was released, it was a box office hit. It is three hours long, so that is uh, particularly uh, impressive. And it it is often listed as one of the best French films ever made. And uh, although it is probably not even the top 10 when you list all of the BFI French picks in order. Uh, maybe the BFI got it wrong. Maybe it got it right. Chandler, what did you think? They got of it wrong. The Children of Paradise. <laughs> I mean, okay. 
because it could could go up or could go down. This is a good movie. Barely. It is a lot of movie. It is impressive. But it is kind of a giant mess, I think. Interesting. But I don't think it's a bad movie. In order to lean into the the split take nature of the podcast, I'm going to amplify my opinion of this film and say that I loved it. Really? And I, I think it it is a it is a really really good movie. Split take. We don't okay. get them that often, so I'm very excited for this. I, like there there's uh, there's room for discussion here. Where, where to begin? What? Okay. The the, the the main thing that I think both of us can agree on is that the the scope and spectacle of this movie is pretty insane. Y- yes, and it, getting right into some of the the background of the film that it was it was made during Nazi occupied France uh, under the the occupied government and under the Vichy government. Quite frankly, you would not really know watching no, it. I didn't. Like if you didn't know that. You you no. But it, what is interesting is that in the, the extras, there's a lot of extras. There's a, uh, a huge set, one of the biggest sets at the time of making this film. It was the most expensive French film ever made. And it had one of the biggest sets. They recreated a, uh, a French street that was eventually bulldozed when they uh, remodeled Paris. Um, but in the, all the extras in those street scenes... Some of them are like Nazi collaborators and some of them are like secret resistance people who were smuggled on set. Interesting. So it's really interesting uh, kind of thinking about, oh, I'm just going to shut off my phone (laughs) twice. Okay. Yes, it is a big, it is a big film in scope, not necessarily, although it's an intimate big film. It is because uh, this movie reminded me of two things. It was like, the entirety of Topsy Turvy mixed with the most Eisley Cantina scene. Where I feel like I every think it's an scene. Comparison. I like that. Every scene was either big theatrical performances and the people backstage at those things, or it was uh, our main characters huddled around public places and. I don't know. Uh. <laughs> If we were to uh, bring up, since since you, since you brought up Topsy Turvy, I I will say I think Topsy Turvy might be it might be the better movie, uh, and I would uh, put Topsy Turvy on this I list. Agree. I agree, but but I think Children of Paradise has a much much more interesting uh, backstory history to it. But that that does not make a good movie. So. No, it doesn't. But okay, so the main the main movie, the main plot of the movie is essentially a love story, kind of. That's yes, it's 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 really hard to sum up this movie in terms of narrative because a lot happens. It's four four technically historical French figures fall in love with a woman and each try to uh, pursue her in their own way. But that's the thing and about all this movie in like this street of theaters and carnivals and stuff. Yeah. But that's the thing about this movie is that it, it who was pursuing who was never all that clear to me. I mean, I know all four men were pursuing this girl, but I feel like um, the only one who's consistent in this goal was Baptiste. 
who is the pantomime hopeless romantic that falls in love with Garance, the woman early on in the movie. And I love that scene um, because a lot of this movie is performance, a lot of theater performance, mm-hmm. clown performances, pantomime performances. And there are points where I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Like in the first scene with Baptiste and Garance, where uh, Garance is accused of stealing a man's watch and Baptiste has to act out what happened. That is one of the scenes where I'm like, okay, this is great. But then there's a bunch of. But he does it. He he gives his testimony towards her. Yeah. Uh, for her, all in pantomime. Yes. Which is actually really funny. It is. And it is funny. I always love it when an old movie makes me chuckle. Yeah, it's narrative progression in the action. But towards the end of this movie, there's a lot of just scenes of us watching Baptiste perform, and I just don't care. I I do think the movie is too long. I I will I grant you that. But I think for the most part, it justifies that length, although there are some things that could maybe be trimmed down ever so slightly. And it is mostly some of uh, Baptiste's performance in the the kind of the two thirds mark of the mark of yeah. the film. And I also just the romance stuff, because this movie is a romance. Yeah. And but the thing is, Baptiste consistently is after Garance. that. Yes, I get that. Um between acts one and two because it's split up into two halves um which i guess is the intermission because it's a long movie kind of but to to put some context on that real quick the this is like a precursor to the hobbit films (laughs) or to to whenever movies are split into two uh the they originally uh marcel carnet and jacques privet the writer originally wanted it to be like two hours and uh, 15 minutes and that was ever so slightly too long to show. But their producer was like, hey, if you make it even longer, we can split it up into two movies and I make more money because they're two movies. Uh, which is ironic because eventually they got him to just show it as one movie in the uh, the premiere and the first run of the, the film in Paris. Interesting. So it is, for the most part, only been one movie, even though it was intended to be two movies to, to be sold yeah. as that. Well, the th- okay. The thing is about this movie is that a lot rides on the the r- the juggling romantic interests of Garance. Um, there are four men. It's, it's who a are... film that juggles a lot of plot lines at the same time. Yes, uh, the film. But the thing is, Baptiste is consistent. He never changes. Um, who is uh, uh, who is the the other actor? There's Frederick. Fred Frederick. Yes. Frederick is immediately smitten, but then his desires turn more into like being a very good actor and he kind of like forgets about her or I never felt like he was pursuing her. And then you have the other guy in the beginning who uh, the murderer, <laughs> Pierre Francois, Pierre Francois, who never seemed interested all, at all. We've all three that. of these, by the way, the mime, the actor and the thief are all based on real french historical figures interesting the the aristocrat is not yeah well you have the thief who outright from the beginning says like he's incapable of love he doesn't want love but he doesn't despise her but that isn't enough for me to think okay it's not enough for him to feel justified in the story for me because all he really does Mm. is he's a quirky eccentric character who also 
progresses the movie by killing, trying to kill somebody, and then Garance gets framed for it or accused of it, and then she gets her get out of jail free, marry a rich dude card, which then takes us into the second half. And it's just it. I never felt like every plot line was on the same wavelength. It felt like four different movies. No, in that well, see, it didn't feel like that. It felt I felt it was very like they all intertwined really well that there was a kind of a, a fatalistic sense to a lot of it where the events of one narrative would affect the other that the way that Pierre Francois uh, ki- tries to kill someone and then she gets uh, blamed for it. And the scene preceding that is she finally uh, what's it, what's his name? Baptiste is finally able to realize that she loves him, but then she has to go, and uh, essentially become the mistress of this count in order to escape the law. And so that kind of all like uh, the fate of them being apart. And it it seemed really well interconnected to me, like things in the first half kind of corresponded to things in the second half. Yeah. And I almost want to describe the film is I, I was listening to some of the behind the scenes stuff and I just started listening to some of the commentary, got through about 20 minutes of it. But it was described as poetic realism as the style of the film. Mm-hmm. Although I think from our perspective today, poetic melodrama might be the more correct or the more yeah. apt phrase to call it that would uh, correctly in, uh, let you envision what it's what it's kind of going for. And it, it it's interesting because it's got a lot of it's got a lot of romance and cliche narrative rhyming and contrivances, but I think that all works because it's 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 all like built upon four interesting characters. And I thought they were interesting each in their own way because I they're do. not I agree there. Each of them is pursuing her in a very, very different way. And some of them are more subtle than others. Baptiste is obviously the most kind of traditionally romantic. Mm hmm lover in this instance and then you might say that frederick is kind of just someone who is looking for uh physical love over any actual attachment because he's more interested in his own goals of becoming a famous actor which is there in the beginning of the film and then the thief pierre francois is more interested in her in like an intellectual way rather than any kind of physical way and then the aristocrat is there for uh just having her like a love in a possession a possessive but kind of i don't even uh, know sense. that though because in the end he seems genuinely upset that she doesn't love him love him i think yes he more I, I think that. that's like reducing it to its like basic kind of okay yeah and and when i said like it, it's cliched but it's it starts a lot of them are like built on archetypes on cliche but are actually very kind of subtle and have a lot of depth to them under the, the surface when the film starts building. Yeah. Them up. It, but the thing is that I don't find any of these characters uninteresting. I'm just unsatisfied with the way dissatisfied with the way that it all comes together because it feels like, and maybe that's what you were saying. That was the point, but it feels like a series of narrative progressions that are mainly resulted from coincidences and fate 
which is kind of interesting, but I just feel like the all these characters are so subject to fates that there's no agency to all of them. And I just don't find how the story develops compelling because of that. They're not moving in the same direction to me. I will say, though, I love the ending, like the final two, three minutes, I think are great. You know, when, when I originally saw it, I thought the ending was a bit too abrupt, Did, like it didn't finish with much resolution. Uh, but the more that I thought about it, the more and particularly like I knew the ending was coming up because I could I could just feel its presence of like the film is wrapping up and it felt like a, is it is it going to tie up some of these loose threads? And it didn't. But the the feeling that you get when at the very end, the like the very last scene, uh, spoilers, but not really. You can keep listening. It'll be for a quick second. Uh, <laughs> that they're chasing there's a chase through the carnival and it's very kind of it's melodramatic but kind of sad and it nothing is resolved but nothing is resolved in a way that makes that i still got a sense of conclusion once i like kind of thought about it and kind of lived with sat with it, the ending for a little bit mm-hmm. yeah I, uh, that's the thing is that i like the ending and i like the way it was presented and i like the feeling that I get at the end of the of it, but I do agree that not a lot is resolved because it, I don't know. It almost feels like the whole wrench that's thrown in Baptiste's life of him, his whole family life being disrupted by the return of her almost feels like it was, it was, it was a narrative that was solely implemented to elicit this tragic ending this tragic feeling in the ending but at the end you know after that initial feeling wears off i'm just like what was this even about what did this say it was just romance and tragedy with no real second meaning deeper meaning than that i guess i think there's deeper meaning not necessarily in any kind of like theme or any message necessarily to convey but there's you can get different things out of reading into the romance and the different yeah ways that people approach there's like that micro commentaries and yeah and there's kind of a, a secondary level to the film which is it, it is very much a art a movie about art and the artistic process and some of the the things i really liked about the the kind of thematic implications of the film is how often life imitated the art whenever they were doing like some of the plays they were doing um a shakespeare mm-hmm. othello and that kind of had implications later on in the in the uh, film. And then there are things from their lives, things that happen to Baptiste, things that happen to Frederic that end up inside of the art itself. And it's kind of the the kind of reciprocal nature of art imitating and being inspired by life at the same time. I also like the this is more prevalent in the second half specifically but the idea that you know romanticizing the past that the past is in the past and can't be resurrected for any moment like in the end when baptiste and garantz go back to like her old home and she's talking about how the table is exactly where it was this is where i used to lay down stuff like that and you know they're rekindling this old love in this familiar place but it's not the same and it can't be the same that stuff is interesting to me but it becomes it comes so late in the movie um, it, it, I don't hate it though. I I kind of agree. 
part of it is is I'm I'm on this this edge of where I agree how it can seem and it might be kind of contrived or how things don't necessarily line up well and sometimes the four plot lines feel very distinct from each other and almost too distinct and it it might just be kind of the melodramatic nature and the romantic nature of the film that you either latch onto or you don't mm-hmm. and it, at least on his first viewing it it worked for me altogether and it felt very cohesive but i'll be interested to revisit it and see what i think it's like uh i will i will compare this movie to a nice dinner of sushi chocolate milk and peanut butter toast i love all three of those things (laughs) but eating at the same time is weird (laughs) i don't agree but i get it and i like this metaphor (laughs) all great foods quality foods pull up some things here i'm giving this movie the benefit of a doubt because i will also admit that this movie it was not all one sitting i watched it across three days because i had a very healthy um uh, uh, I, I was just basically doom scrolling for like a whole week trying to fit this movie in whenever i could and that dread sort of carried over into the viewing process maybe i just wasn't in the romantic mindset for a a big sweeping romantic epic so i will watch this again at some point I watched it over two days. I could have watched it in one sitting, actually. I, I wanted to. It's just I was getting tired near the end. Yeah. It was late and I needed to go to bed. Um, but I, th- I think it's doable in one sitting. And I feel like this is one of the most French movies we've ever seen. It's very French. It is both simultaneously very French, but it's also very kind of light. There's a lightness to it and a comedy to it yeah. that I, I really appreciate it. And that's what held it together because I'm, I'm so I'm familiar with like stuffy french movies like i guess it's stuffy but the earrings of madame de that's fun which i really like Same. but if if that tone was for three hours i would have hated it <laughs> yeah it's and so it, it is correctly kind of presented in this melodramatic way that mm-hmm. is simultaneously very french and also kind of unique because yeah. i don't think i've seen a French film that is this kind of light and kind of airy. Now, here's my question. Yes. Is this the first movie on the BFI list with blackface? <laughs> uh, it is Shakespeare. And you know who else? A uh, couple years later, you know who did the same thing? Orson Welles. Played oh, he Othello. played Othello? Yeah. Oh, no. This is one of those things where I'm like, it's it's 43. I don't care. I, I don't care. Like, if you care, uh, I mean, they're all dead. They were all against the Nazis. I, you know, it's Shakespeare. Who cares? It's fine. It's France. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Like, this is another thing. Like, if it was Gone with the Wind and they were doing a, like, there's a Othello recreation in Gone with the Wind with blackface, that would have been, ew. Yeah. Although well, Gone with the Wind is already, ooh. Oh but, yeah, this is this is like I mean it's 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 like double layers. It's an old movie, but it's an old movie that takes place in an even older time, <laughs> and it's Shakespeare, so it's whatever. <laughs> it's fine. From what I what I can tell, a lot of the movies made under the Nazi occupation were actually period dramas solely because it was harder to get away with stuff if it was uh, topical and uh, like current. I will say they definitely this is a movie that was made in the 1940s, early 1940s, and they scrubbed this movie of every stain of World War Two. You it it feels like. It's very true to the time period it's portraying. 
There's no remnant of modern civilization anywhere in this movie. So, hey, good job. <laughs> what else did this guy do? I'm curious. I love how in the, in the Wikipedia page it says, a 1995 vote by 600 French critics and professionals lent it the plain tag, best film ever. No. I'm pretty sure Citizen Kane It's pretty good. For this. It, it is good. It is good. Uh, does it deserve to be no. on the BFI list? Okay, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> okay, interesting. I think I think it's good enough, and I think it has an interesting enough backstory. Although, you know, if you're redoing the list, maybe put Topsy Turvy on here instead. Well, yeah, that's what I'd, I'd say. I do. Between I'd agree to two, that. Definitely Topsy Turvy. How could I say no to Topsy Turvy? <laughs> uh, although I really like this, how could I say no to Mike Lee? All right, so what's next? I don't even know what's next. Yeah, no, is it? Are, I thought it was just Bong stuff. Yes, next next episode. Although I should probably figure out what's next. Uh, the BFI. Uh, oh yeah, show it anyway. I'm curious. I don't know where the list is. But next episode, we're doing a Bong Joon Ho retrospective. We're doing uh, Bong's filmography. We're hitting yeah. the Bong. Hit that Bong. I need to watch uh, the commentary for Parasite. Ooh, that's exciting. <laughs> I need to rewatch Memories of Murder. Oh, I'm gonna have a good week. I need. To, I'm. I'm gonna rewatch Memories I might of do Murder that tomorrow. Watch Parasite, black and white. And uh, Okja. I'll watch Okja. Maybe I'll rewatch Mother. Maybe. I don't want to watch Snowpiercer again. I don't want to watch Barking Dogs Never Bite again. Which I watched last month. We'll, we'll discuss that. Yeah. Mmm. 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 <laughs> what? Yeah, I think you will enjoy this. Our next film is going to be The Third Man. Oh! <laughs> Saved. 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 <laughs> 